Well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, I was really, really interested in having you on for a few reasons. One being uh, your book, Journey of the Heroic Parent, and uh, reading the book and just sort of digesting it and relating it to my own experience as a child with parents and also the work that I do with families, with children and with their parents um, and how packed full of wisdom uh, the book is. I think I, I think I was especially drawn to it because we work um, we work with a similar population. Mm -hmm. We work with young men and women primarily and, you know, men and women that are going through a very tough time. So I think that was a huge part of why I gravitated towards the book. Um, you and I have had a couple brief professional interactions and everyone that I hold in high regard holds you in high regard. So I am honored to be speaking with you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for... The honor of being on. I appreciate it. I also attended, it was actually almost exactly a year ago, I attended my own sort of wilderness program as an adult. Oh, wow. Yeah. I went to a place called Boulder Outdoor Survival School. Mm, boss. Right. Boss. Yeah. In Utah. Yeah. Um, now, I, I know the experiences are different, right, with your program um, and boss, very different, but there was so much about being out in the wilderness with basically just a knife and a blanket, um, and learning, learning how to take care of yourself and learning how to take care of the tribe, if you will, and sort of digesting that ancestral wisdom, um, and, and just sort of taking a break from our, usual normal reality it was it was a trans transformative experience for me one that i look back on with great fondness and uh and it was a gift which was even more cool i didn't know it was i didn't sign up for it myself it was given to me as a birthday gift by my partner um and she just said go out and please survive and mm -hmm. i did <laughs> uh but it was great and and you operate and co-founded Evoke Therapy Programs. Um, who, who are you, Brad? Can we talk about like, how, you know, where you're from and what your childhood was like a bit um, and sort of growing up, what that was like? Yeah, yeah. I, I'll start with a, a brief background and tell you who I am today. I was one of the children that we treat. I grew up in Southern California, Los Angeles and Orange County. And um, I, I didn't know it at the time. I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I was pretty angry. A lot of substance abuse. And um, I was angry at what wasn't happening for me. I didn't have the kind of experience as a child with parents that, that I wanted to have. And I was mad about it and showed it in the way that kids show it. I acted out. There's a quote from one of my favorite books that says, rebellion for children is kind of a last resort. And so my rebellion dropping out of high school getting arrested, doing drugs was just my way. Now that I put it together, my way of saying like, this is not okay. This is not working for me. Um, I vowed as a, as a late teenager and got sober and clean from drugs. I vowed never to be a therapist because I had been forced into therapy. Um, but then in college, after taking a, a class on child development, I, I realized that it's what I had been prepared to do my entire life. I fell into wilderness therapy accidentally. Um, a professor of mine during graduate school, I was finishing my PhD, said, you should check this thing out. I, th I think he had done it with his son and said, there's this remarkable program that uses wilderness outdoors and, and, and overlays a really compassionate, sophisticated therapeutic model on top of the, the experience of being outside that's really, really impactful. So I, I drove, couldn't get an answer from them. I drove down and visited this wilderness program that does not exist anymore. And Luckily to my luck, the therapist that I eventually replaced had just quit the day before because he got lost in the wilderness and was so frustrated. So that was my introduction to wilderness therapy. I had no idea what it was. I was not necessarily an outdoor guy myself growing up, but I was put into the field that first day and immediately 
both from the staff and the students, I saw the power and the impact of primitive living in the outdoors, unplugged, even back then being unplugged meant something not near as much as it means today. Right. Um, but then just what kind of, what, how it kind of created a space to do therapy with, with young people that I had never seen. I had worked um, in, a, in a few residential settings prior to this. Um, I'd never seen anything so dynamic. I'd never seen somebody so open. I'd never seen resiliency. I'd never seen kind of the natural living together experience, especially in the outdoors, do so much of the work for 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 us therapeutically. So uh, I did that. And then a few years later, me and a few others decided we would start one on our own with a greater clinical emphasis. And that was in 1998. So we started ours. Um, and then we just built it from there. And so now we have two wilderness programs, one in Oregon, one in Utah. We also have a, a therapeutic intensive program in the Salt Lake City area that we run for families and adults. But um, it's just, it's it, it's been this evolution. And really what it's come to now is this is really a, a family therapy-based and attachment-based program. So my mission in life has been to bring parent work, family work into it. I, I know these children are the identified patients and they, they, they deserve that, that moniker, but we try to bring the family work into it and the parent work into it in a compassionate and gentle way. And we just see remarkable results there. So that's a little bit of, I'm the, I'm the executive clinical director at Evoke Therapy Programs. That's over our two wellness programs and our intensive program. So that's a little, I'm also a father of four, hmm. two of whom have been to wellness therapy mm -hmm. uh, and I'm married, live in Salt Lake City. Yeah. I loved parts of your book where you discuss your story with your son and with your wife and the impact that those experiences had on you, obviously, and your work. Um, a big part of why I wanted to do this podcast and some of the new projects I'm working on is because I wasn't, you need, I don't often hear a lot about the intimate portions of people's work, especially people that are promoting, um, sort of transformative processes. And it was really nice to see, to read that, you know, to be, feel, I felt included in parts of your story and parts of your son's story. And, um, you know, it, it goes a long way for me when I know someone's been through the process themselves. Um, and as a father, I'm not a father, but, you know, viewing you as a father and, and knowing you as a, you know, a clinician and a director of these programs, um, it, it just, there's an element of trust in that. So I, I really, really appreciated that. You know, there are plenty of parenting books out there, obviously. And when I was, because I, I do so many public speaking events and I do so much teaching people that said, you know, you should write a book, but I thought, I, what can I add to what's already out there? And sure. One of the things I could add is just my story just another story, another personal story. And so I really thought of it from that perspective is that I have a story that's very specific, but it speaks to the general struggle of, of being a person, being a father, husband, uh, child. Um, and so for me, that's, that was the idea is that I'm just, I'm just going to share And my publisher. She's amazing. Her name is Judith Regan. She, she's committed to that idea about everybody's story can be told. Everybody's story can, can teach us something. And so that's the first place I thought, that's why I wrote the book is because the only thing, the, the, the most unique thing I had to tell, because uh, several principles have been taught by, by many great authors over the years, but I just had my story. And my vantage point is watching hundreds and thousands of, of families kind of go through the wilderness, both metaphorically and literally. And, and that mm. vantage point has been such a gift and an honor to, to sit in that seat. Mm-hmm. What got you sort of interested and maybe even a little obsessed with parenting and not just being one yourself, but other than your own story and your own parenting and, you know, having those people in your life that promoted and, um, and supported you to write about your experiences and your, you know, your methods. I, I relate to when you say these things have been written before a lot of people ask me, in my coaching practice, what are your methods? And I just say, you know, they're just sort of an amalgamation of, mm -hmm. of truth, you know, and, and I didn't make anything up. It's not mine, right? I'm just taking what I've learned and sort of putting it in a big pot and kind of ladling it out and figuring out what 
portions of the recipe need to be altered for each individual. Um, what, what draws you to helping parents parent or has it changed? I mean, you know, I know I'm sure it's a, there's the simple answer of like, I'm a dad. Um, but what's changed in your work and, and, and what still attracts you to parenting? You know, it's funny because when, when I had my first child 27 years ago, my oldest is 27. And I always tell the story that when I, when I had him, I was, I looked at him and my attitude was like, congratulations to you. Like, I'm your dad. I'm not going to make the same mistakes my parents made. Yeah. I'm going to study parenting because I'd already declared my major in, in, in human development. Um, so I, I, thought, I thought I had it all figured out. Um, but what really became, why it became an obsession to me is as I started working with these young people, these, these adolescent boys and girls, I identified so strongly with them. I, I, yes, they're symptomatic. Yes, they, they, they earn their seat, if you will, at the mm. treatment table, if you will, because they're, they're doing things that are dangerous, that are, that are maladaptive. But as I, as I sat and listened and watched them and then watched their families, I thought, your feelings matter. Like, it makes sense. What you're doing makes sense. Um, and so I, I really saw at that point of becoming an advocate for the child and, and giving them a voice. I see myself in that role. I get to spend my life using my training and skills and experience to teach parents what children need. And then the second piece that came along was I thought there was so much judgment in parenting, parenting education, and even the treatment field, the treatment as a field, that there's so much parent judgment. Um, you know, we have phrases like helicopter parenting. Um, and we say that really with the intention to really shame parents who are wounded. And so what I started to think about was these parents are just, grown-up kids with wrinkles and hair loss and extra fat around the midsection and, and, and gray hair and, and wrinkles. I just thought they're just children. Hmm. So for me, identifying with the children, because I went through some of the same experiences and feelings, but then being a father and knowing how hard that job, knowing how hard relationships in life are and is, I, I looked at the parents and I said, I think we can do this in a compassionate way. I'm, I'm a believer in lifelong therapy. Mm. I guess that's probably the last piece of the puzzle is I have this wonderful therapist for the past 21 years who has held a, a kind of a, given me an experience of being reparented, of re-experiencing myself. And so if, if I could say it in the most simple way, it's kind of like what you said about ladling it out, it out. I'm really just doing for other people, for parents and children, what somebody did for me. Right. which is viewing them through compassion, offering some ideas that might help and heal, but, but really just supporting people and where they need to go. And so anytime somebody will say to me, thank you for your work. Thank you for what you've done. I, I respond that way. I say, I'm just doing something for some, for you, what, what somebody did for me. And so I think it's kind of those three or four things that led me to, I think what you accurately described as my obsession with family dynamics and parenting. I figured it wasn't just a profession or an interest in in some of the conversations we've had, and then also some of the conversations I've had with other people uh, in regards to your program and the work you do. I figured it was partially obsessive, at least. Yes. <laughs> um, I was building my brand. I, I, I had a lot of uh, trouble doing that. I, I worked sort of behind the scenes for a long time. And before that I worked for a couple big coaching brands. And then before that I did a lot of clinical work. Um, but in doing the work myself and moving out and sort of expanding into my own sort of private practice, uh, I was pretty freaked out to have a, a public image or sort of a, um, you know, having there be a face uh, behind the brand. And I was speaking with a friend a couple years ago and he told me about this thing called the hero's journey. And he told me about these different archetypes and how they relate to, you know, a lot of the stories that were told. In fact, probably all of them, mm -hmm. um, you know, portions of how we're raised and portions of how we relate with other people. Uh, and then also how you can relate that to a brand. And 
when I picked up your book, it was like one of the first things was this idea of the hero's journey. And then so I think it was last week I was speaking with a colleague and I told him that you and I would be speaking. And he said, oh, Brad is obsessed with the hero's journey. He's also obsessed with Star Wars. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to, I just, I thought it was interesting. And I thought it was interesting that you bring together this idea of the hero's journey, you know, with parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for, for people that are listening, if they want to learn more about it, a very entertaining and engaging documentary called Finding Joe is, is a great way to kind of familiarize yourself with it. And there's other resources, of course, in books by Joseph Campbell, but um, that, that's a good place to start. I, I think it came to me after trying to provide parents with recipes to fix their children that didn't work. You know, I, I thought as a young therapist, I'm going to give sound advice. Um, I'm going to give really clever, smart, intelligent tools. Uh, I'm going to speak to parents about kind of the recipe for what to do to, to prevent or, or fix children that, that are wayward, that are getting off track. And then as happens with all of us, after some experience, it doesn't work that way. And, and people break and they bleed and they get hurt and, and worse. And so I, I was kind of humbled by the process that I couldn't, after obsessing about it, breathing it every day and night, and then getting introduced to the, the hero's journey in my work at some point, one of our therapists brought that idea to us and started talking to us about it. And that just, it just went off. It just, the light bulb went off of me. And I thought, this is the story. The heroic journey hmm. is the journey inward. It's the journey looking at yourself. And that the only thing that changes on this journey, for sure, if you allow it to happen, is you. You transform. And that transformation can have a marvelous effect. You know, that's the last part of the hero's journey is that the hero comes back from this quest to find the grail or the widget, or, or in my world, to fix the child, right? That, that's how they walk through the door. They say, I have this child that's hurting, that's suffering, please fix them. And then we kind of surround them with our love and with our resources and our tools. And we engage the parents in a transformative process. And then the parent changes. Everything in the parent's life changes. And then they they, they see things that they couldn't see before. They, they hear what they couldn't hear before. They feel differently about their child's journey and struggle. They, they see wounds instead of good and bad. So I just saw this transformative process as the, as the parent went inward and the hero's journey is a wonderful uh, description of that process that I thought that's, that's the pattern is you go out for the thing that you think you're, you, you want, you need. Uh, D.W. Winnicott said, the famous psychologist said that it's the false self that brings the real self into therapy. Hmm. In other words, what we think therapy is when we start is often not what it becomes later on. And so you think you're trying to fix your alcoholic spouse or your depressed or anxious daughter. Um, and yes, that's part of what the, the motivation that gets you into a 12-step room or a family coaching session or to a therapeutic program like, like Evoke Therapy Programs. But in the end, the real transformation is your, you. And it changes you. you. And you might not always get what you want. Your alcoholic spouse might not get sober. Mm -hmm. Your anxious child might never fully recover on and on. But what can happen if you allow it is that you transform and then when you transform of course the world transforms so and star wars by the way I, I it's such an accessible i mean star wars is joseph campbell's hero's journey yeah. george lucas wrote it intentionally consciously with with the hero's journey in mind so it's a great example of, of what happens which is that the journey changes us and that's what i learned from parenting is that my simple advice my early thoughts about instructing parents and fixing kids didn't make sense after a while. And really we're talking about each individual's personal transformation as they walk through the, 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 the hero's trail, the hero's journey. I'm going to jump around the book a bit and kind of get your perspective on things and, um, and maybe get a little extra or additional feedback for listeners, especially parents. Um, I think it's chapter one. It's a, it's an amazing book and I'm going to jump around and it's worth picking up uh, because these are just a few little excerpts. Um, the authors issue this edict for parents to do their own work in order to develop a better understanding of themselves. 
In so doing, they can provide their children with a healthier context for growing up. We learn to understand different parts of ourselves, feelings, fears, old scripts, external voices, guilt, imperatives, social pressures. And as we come to know ourselves, we learn to strip away all of the noise that interferes with the essential truth inside ourselves. As a parent, and more, we can strip away all that stuff that blurs our vision. The more we clearly, the more clearly we can understand our children and their needs. From there, it is a matter of working through our fears, our anxieties, and developing some simple skills for communication or setting boundaries. While this process may sound simple, it is painfully difficult. I uh, I had a big like asterisk next to that, and it's really simple and it's a very like sort of um lovely way to introduce the book the 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 most exciting part of what i just read is that last bit it is painfully difficult and i in my work with families i'm pretty explicit about that and i'm i'm sure you are too but this is this these transformative processes are not supposed to be <laughs> they're not supposed to be easy you know, there's sure there, there can be some handholding and, and there can be this lovely, gentle way in which we we introduce some of these mechanisms. Uh, you know, and I, I imagine people coming to see you and your team and doing these wilderness trips. It, it's really not easy. And, and the families are, are suffering and that's not easy. I mean, is there something to sort of choosing to embark on this painful path uh, and and maybe even being a little bit more painful than sitting in the pain of what's been happening. Um, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I see a lot of people not change because not changing is less painful than changing. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think eventually you can get uh, you can get a hunger and a thirst for it, but at the beginning, it's terrifying. Yeah, not not just painful, but ter- terrifying. Campbell, Joseph Campbell, the one who came up with the idea of the hero's journey, said that when we see the threshold that we must cross, um, we're sure that it will kill us. We're sure, and we see dead bodies at the threshold's base, just as evidence that everybody who's tried to cross it has died. And so it's, it's painful and it's, it's terrifying. The thing that I've seen in my work is that oftentimes the one thing that will compel somebody to do it is not their suffering, but the suffering of a loved one, mm. especially a child. Mm-hmm. The one thing that most people cannot not do is love their children. And so they will end up in rooms and offices and virtual meetings and inside of a book that they never would have gone into had it not been for the fact that they thought if they went into those places, they would save their child, right? They go into, Joseph Campbell refers to it as a cave or a forest. They go into those frightening places, which are all just metaphors for going inward, for unraveling ourselves. Um, They go in those places, those terrifying places, because they see their child or their loved one in there. They're going after them to save them. And so, um, yes, if it gets uncomfortable enough in our lives, we'll change. But I think the thing that is most commonly compelling for people that I work with is they're trying to save something else. And they don't realize that in the end, that it is they who will be saved, mm. that, that they will become a, a new person. And in a way, Campbell, he, he teaches this. He says, you know, they're, they're kind of right because um, in, in storytelling and in mythology, he talks about death is often a motif for transformation, right? This, the old self must die for the new self to, 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 to come out of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, it's a painful, it's a terrifying, what, what I think of, what I can offer people who are on the journey is my presence. And I don't mean I can be with them 24 hours a day, but I can sit with them in the pain and get it with them. I think what, what turns our, our suffering into pain that we can tolerate is connection. And so part of what I try to offer our clients in, in our wilderness program or our intensive program or our parents that we do so much support and work with um, online or, or over the phone um, or even with visits when those are allowed to happen um, is we just offer them our presence. And they say, this is scary. This is terrifying. It doesn't make sense. Nothing. I was never taught this. 
This goes against everything I, I, I believe. And we, we metaphorically and in some ways literally just sit with them and say, we know we're, we're here with you and we'll sit with you through the pain. And, and that, that's about the best that we can offer them. And with that comfort, that connection that, that, that offers them comfort, I think people are able to walk through some pretty terrifying, painful experiences. I was never taught this. That's that's a that's a big one. I I've noticed myself reflecting on parts of my childhood and my journey as a, an adult, just my entire life in general. I, and realizing I, I was not taught this. Um, a lot of the compassion, a lot of the the sort of the empathy I have for people comes from that. You weren't taught this, you know. Uh, I'll have I'll be having conversations with people who are obviously incredibly resentful at other people, and and I'll use that, you know. Maybe well, maybe they weren't taught that, and it's incredibly powerful and 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 some of the simplest things not just in your book but i guess through the process of parenting are incredibly simple you talk about uh in the foundations for connection chapter i think it's chapter four the nuts and bolts of connecting with others i feel statements and what is the other reflective listening and a friend of mine came to me and asked if I would help him put on a presentation at a workplace for coworkers and kind of build out this idea of, a, you know, somewhat of a structural seminar for people kind of taking care of themselves and sort of good, good practices to do that in, in and out of the workplace. Um, and he had a lot of great ideas and they were very, a lot of them were very grand and I loved that. And at the same time, I was thinking to myself, and I don't remember if I, if I spoke about this with him, but I, I, I don't know if I did. I, I just thought you could just do an hour and a half lecture to the workplace about I feel statements <laughs> and call it a day because it's such a simple thing. And I, I wasn't, I don't think I was taught it as a child. I think I learned it in ways as an adolescent through my own therapy and then through my own process of changing and also getting sober and then the therapy that came after that and all the change work that came after that. And I'm like a full, full subscriber and I, and I'm sort of, I'm like shameless about it. You know, even people that will say, well, don't, you know, don't therapize me. Uh, I'm just like, I don't give a shit. I'm going to use I feel statements. Right. And, and it's so simple. And I'm just so glad that you, that that was like one of the first sort of communication 101 things that you put in there. Yeah, I, I think I had, I had a client at an intensive say to me, he'd done some work through our, our wilderness program as a parent. Um, but then he chose to come to, to the, 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 per, the personal workshops that we hold in the Salt Lake area and do a few days there. And he said to me halfway through it, he said, you know, I was listening to your podcasts um, and I heard you say something that rang true that really face of everything I'd been taught. Um, and it scared me to death because then when this one fundamental belief that I'd had my entire life was kind of destroyed, I realized everything was up for grabs. Um, and, and so I, I think that you know, enlightenment is a process of unlearning as much as anything else. And mm. we weren't shown, we weren't shown how to relate to people. We weren't shown how to, how to feel. We weren't shown how, how to sit and listen to somebody's feelings. I, I had eight women on a, on a virtual support group last week that, that are all alumni of our intensives programs. And they've all done a tremendous amount of work. It wasn't supposed to be all women. It's just that that's who showed up to it. Um, but they were all sharing various stories of their pain, their challenges, their struggles, some successes. And this lasted an hour and about 45, 50 minutes into it, after all of them had shared something or more than one thing, I just said to them, I said, do you realize how amazing you guys are as listeners? You're just sitting and nobody's trying to be, to, to fix anything. Nobody's trying to, 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 to 
you know, put a smile on it. You're just listening and holding amazing space for each other. And they all just kind of nodded, but I just said, that's not normal. It's not normal for somebody to sit with somebody and just to, to hear them. It's not, it's not normal for somebody to talk about and own their own pain, their own anger. So much, so many of us think that we're not really angry. It's just that the world is unfair. We don't know that it's our anger. Mm. We, we just don't, we're not even taught that. We're, we're taught that it's, it's out there. It's outside of us. And so the I feel statement for me becomes this tool that's, um, that's really a spiritual tool about taking ownership of one's life and realizing, yes, people do things to me that hurt me or upset me, but I feel this way. Now it's mine. Mm-hmm. And now I have to live with it, unravel it, make decisions based on it, but it's, it's mine and it's, it's, a, it's an I statement. So yes, it's, I love it as a communication tool and I love it for me as a deep, I was taught that tool as a teenager when I was forced to go to therapy and I of course had no idea what it meant. And it took me 20 years of being taught it over and over again in different contexts and in college and then in therapy to practice to say, oh, this is just a statement about how it is to be with somebody, what it looks like when you have an intimate relationship with somebody. Yeah, as a as a angry kid, I I didn't want to take ownership for any of my stuff. You make me feel was like that was the go to, and it becomes ingrained in us. And even for people that are experiencing some sort of process in or out of therapy that have been you know lubricated for some of this stuff, it's such a go. It's like such a a mechanism. It's like you become you habitualize it in ways, and you don't even know you're doing it. And I think a lot of people that I interact with that have gone through some sort of process, they don't even mean it. It's just the way they've always responded. Um, I guess that also brings us to avoiding language traps, which is I'm a big fan of too. Uh, You know, well, it says one of the simplest and most effective parenting tools I've found is eliminating the use of imperatives. It sounds easier than it actually is. Avoid command words and phrases such as you should, you have to, you must, you need to, you've got to, and judgmental words such as good, bad, right, and wrong. (laughs) Yeah. And then it goes on pretty quickly to say, remember, the goal is not behavior change. And that that's, I got like sort of hooked when I read that portion and there's a, there's a portion somewhere very close to this, um, where you talk about, yeah, we feel what they feel. So much of our identity is tied to their pain and their happiness. But it is critical to remember remember that it's okay for them to struggle and experience pain. Um, it's very hard for parents to do that. Yeah, I, I think that parent. I call it empathic misery. Mm. It's, so, it's so hard for us to sit and our empathic misery. And if, if I were go, I mean, we could talk a lot about this, but I, I think it comes from our own attachment wounding. Uh, un, we're unable to soothe ourselves. And so we're unable to sit with somebody and, and allow them to, to authentically feel pain and sadness and grief and sorrow and so forth. And just like I was talking about with those women, watching them sit with each other and listen was a, a profound experience. Going back to the imperatives, I figured this out fairly early in my wilderness therapy career that these words made no sense Mm. and that's not all always you know when you take away the word good and bad right and wrong from people some people freak out about that um but i but i talk about how these these imperative words these shoulds and haves tos and must i talk about how they they're really an attack and the the process of healing is a non-invasive process you know if i walked up to you and you had built a wall around yourself um, to protect you from threats and perceived threats. And I approach you with a, with a pickaxe and a chisel and a hammer and these tools that I, that I told you I was going to remove this wall that obviously is keeping you locked in. It's keeping you in prison. Mm-hmm. You would refortify the wall because you built it because you feel threatened. And the worst thing about it, Dane, is I call that those tools love. I call the pickaxe and chisel love. And so these shoulds and musts and goods and bads they're all pickaxes and chisels toward people that are hurting that are wounded what i love about being a therapist somebody said to me one time my pastor my rabbi i don't remember which it was you know told me this about about right and wrong and and i i had to think about that for a while my eventual response was 
well, I'm a therapist. I'm not a pastor, a priest, or a rabbi. I'm a therapist, and my lens is wounds and healing. My my lens is symptoms and issues are evidence of an underlying wound, and I know how to heal it. Mm. I know the mechanism of healing. And so those words, while they might serve some people in some context to, to, to get some outcome or, or control something, from a therapist's perspective, it's 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 contrary to what we need. We want we want people to lay down their walls. And the only thing that will cause them to lay down their walls, to take the bricks off of their walls, is to set down our tools of destruction that we call love and to take off our armor so that we're not a threat and then to ask questions and get curious. And it's through that experience, it's through that connection that the wounds start to heal. And so if, as the simplest, one of the simplest tools on here, if you eradicate that list of words that I list in that chapter and try to find replacements for them, you'll begin to think very differently about your relationship with with the people that you love. Instead of saying you need to, you'll say things like, in my experience, this has worked for me. Or you should will turn into, I don't know what you should do, um, but I have this thought that may or may not work. Um, or instead of saying that's a good or bad thing, you'll say, you'll, you'll ask questions like, tell me why you're doing that. Where's that coming from? It shifts your whole way of relating to yourself mm. and to the people that you love. You also talk about uh, emotional coercion. Can't find it here in my notes, but there's a part of think within control versus influence and and what you write about that there's this this idea of our parents sort of making us or or here we go making us feel uh our parents what was it one of my parents i won't mention which one uh, <laughs> uh was very good at i was under the impression that I was responsible for one of my parents' feelings. Yeah. And that, I remember working with my therapist at the time, and it wasn't that long ago, it was maybe five or six years ago when I first realized how insidious that was. Uh-huh. And how at the same time I hadn't realized sort of the subtle forms of neglect I had experienced as a child. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't realized how detrimental, you know, feeling responsible for a parent was and how I was a child and I wasn't responsible for those feelings. Um, and it, it I'm so glad that I got to that place. And I don't know if people struggle with that. I, I'm, I'm actually not quite sure. I haven't come across it too often, but it, it was definitely a part of my growing up. You know, I think it's nearly perfectly universal. Okay. I think as I've gone around talking to parents, the, the most basic idea in parenting that people come to it with is I love my child first and foremost. And then I'm going to tell, tell my child when I'm upset and that will be an indication to my child that they're doing something wrong. I'm going to tell them when I'm happy or proud or excited or glad, and that will be an indication to the child that they are getting something right. Mm. If I'm angry. If I'm frustrated, if I'm disappointed, you're doing wrong. If I'm happy and proud, you're doing right. Sounds rather harmless if it's coming from a, a loving parent, but what ends up happening for the child is the child doesn't distinguish between mom and dad and a peer or a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. And so they go out in the world believing that what people feel is about them. And then people like you and I spend our entire, this the, the, the second half of our lives trying to not care what people think about us. Right? <laughs> and that's where the highest form of morality is, is we, we, stop, we stop not caring what other people in Al-Anon, they talk about that. They say, what you think about me is none of my business. Right. And that applies to mom and dad too. And so we've got, I talk about replacements, you know, a new mechanism for parenting, but that, that basic idea that we, you believe that you were responsible for your parents' feelings because they told you, you were responsible for their feelings. We tell our children this. And then we wonder when they go out and become susceptible to peer pressure and they don't know themselves. And we say, well, where did that come from? 
And the answer is it came from us. Mm. Ellen was quoted. I heard a quote where he was talking about his son, Jacob, when he had a number one album. And then the reporter asked Bob, they said, how do you feel about your son's number one album? This is back in like 91 or 92. I was listening to my radio. And Bob said, um, regarding his son's success, he said, it's irrelevant. It makes no difference to me. And at first I thought Bob was just being a jerk because he can kind of be snarky to, to the media. But I've been thinking about that now for 30 years and I know what he meant. Mm. It's not, it's not about what a parent thinks about you. It's not, and it's not your job to make them proud or happy or sad. If I live today to make my mother belongs to a different political party than I do to a different religious practice than I do. And I could go down and list a few things. I know she loves me as much as she's capable of loving. I know that. But if I, she prays at me at night because she worries that I'm not going to go to the happy place after I die. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't, I can't concern myself with that in the sense that I can't, I can't make her happy by following what she thinks is my truth. And so I think this principle here is maybe one of the most important principles in the entire book, which is it is not our children's job for us to, 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 to take care of our serenity. Our serenity is our responsibility. And when we have children that are struggling with mental health and addiction issues, we need to go somewhere else to take care of ourselves so that when we're interacting with the child, it's in the service of supporting the child and their needs. If we don't take care of ourselves in our Al-Anon groups or our therapy groups or yoga or meditation, whatever it is that you do that's your practice, if we don't take care of ourselves there, then our interactions will serve us. They'll serve our serenity, our ego, our peace of mind, and then the child gets neglected and abandoned in the most profound way. Mm. Incredible. You go on to talk about control and influence. You talk about guilt and shame. And and it was fascinating to read about, it's been a few weeks since I reviewed the book uh, in preparation for our chat. But you, I think you attempt to distinguish the difference between the two. And then is it that you realize that they're not so different? Can you explain that just briefly? Yeah, I think the I think the idea that guilt is feeling bad for what you do and shame is feeling bad for who you are is a fairly uh, often repeated idea in psychology and self help. Sure. The point I make is that there's this lie that we are told that guilt is has something to do with conscience and morality. And the simplest way to illustrate how silly the idea is and, and self evident for everybody listening is. Everybody listening to my voice right now could think of several examples of things that they might do or would do that would cause them to feel guilt, but that are still the right thing to do. Mm. We feel guilty when we do the right thing often. And so if guilt can can tell us to do the, the wrong thing, you know, feeling guilty will lead us to doing the wrong thing instead of the right thing then it's an unreliable source of morality. So we've got to find something else, some some other North Star, if you will. And so the point I make is that while it's obvious to people that shame causes us to retreat, to hide, to lie, it helps, it contributes to the development of symptoms, guilt does just as much harm. In fact, I even think more harm in some ways because of the lie that we're told that it tells us the difference between right and wrong. As a person who struggles with what, what pop psychologists call codependency, Um, I know for a fact that my guilt is one of the greatest barriers to my doing the right thing, that I will do the wrong thing out of a sense of guilt, uh, every day with my children, with my wife, I will, I will, I, I will, I will have to learn. I have to learn. I have to learn to tolerate guilt in order to do the right thing. And so that's why, while we might distinguish them in terms of their intensity, they still both can be very, very harmful and very misdirecting when it comes to kind of healing and health um, and and developing a sense of of morality. Right. Well, the rest of the book is fascinating and I'm not going to go over every bit and piece because there's about 96 earmarks in these pages. Um, And that was, that was part of the trouble I had preparing for our chat was, what 
to discuss and, and what to focus on. And I would rather have people listening to this pick up the book and actually read it. It was, I got a call from a family the other day and they mentioned that they had your book and I could also tell they hadn't read it. And I said, just read it, okay. you know, read the book. Um, it's, it's worth a read. I don't have children. I work with young men and women. I work with men and women of all ages, but I also work with their families and I help them find solutions. Sometimes the solutions are institutions or programs like yours. Um, but it, the sort of diving into this stuff, regardless of if you're a parent, you know, I, when relating to mom or dad, um, not my mother or father, but a mother or father, I always tell mom or dad, you know, I'm not a dad and I don't know every intricacy of being a dad. I, I am a child, you know, and I know what being a child is like. And now because of some of the process that I've been through, you know, I can, I can relay this information and be like you said, be an advocate for these young men and women, um, so that their parents hopefully can sort of better understand them. Yeah. And I, I don't know if this is okay or not, but I'll, I just published my second book called the audacity to be you right. Learn to love your horrible rotten self. And so for those who think that maybe might be put off by the idea of a parenting book, if you don't have children, obviously it applies to you because you work with families, but the audacity to be you is kind of a, a, a step two, kind of a, the next evolution and making, I make it more clear and talk about couples and marriage um, more, more often in the book to say these principles, while they apply in the context of our parenting, it's really the hero's journey. It's really becoming who you are. I think that we should come back relatively soon and talk about that book. I haven't had a chance to read it, but I'm going to. Um, and before we go, I... I've been dying to ask a couple people, you being one of them, about this interesting predicament parents are having right now with, I guess it's easing up a bit and, and maybe more so in some places. I remember when we went into sort of lockdown mode with, with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, speaking to everyone from friends and family to co-workers and colleagues, uh, uh, you know, people that are sensitive, uh, maybe some of them that are a bit more sensitive than others to parenting and to struggle and to recovery and change. Even some of those people were having a really hard time being in and around their children all day, all night, all day, all night. And, and I guess it's easy for me to, from sort of an, an an outsider's perspective, look in and say, "Well, those, you know, hey, you signed up for that. <laughs> You're a parent, and this is what's happening in the world. And maybe there's an element of this that is spectacular because rarely nowadays, I guess, uh, you know, I'm not that old, but uh, rarely now do we have a chance to slow down and sort of." be with our children and help our children learn and facilitate some of um some of their growth in person more than more than not uh i'm i've learned what it really means you know i i used to hear as a kid it takes a village mm -hmm. uh and i i think that was always sort of conveyed to me by like sassy aunts and uncles that were half drunk that, you know, couldn't really be bothered to do the hard stuff. Um, but I think I, I understand it more now as an adult through my work, through my own process of, of learning about my childhood. And, and like you said, being sort of reparented by mentors and teachers, uh, it's okay that it takes a village, you know, ancestrally, uh, the village did take care of the young uh, and we don't have that right now. And some people more than others, they don't have that village accessible because 
we're meant to stay home. But I just kind of wanted to get your perspective, if you have one, on people, parents struggling with their children at home right now. There's a quote from Ram Dass that I love. He passed away last fall before COVID was here, and he would have said it again, I'm sure, if he were still around when COVID was here. But he said, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's, it's hard. It, it's what it, it, can, it causes us to have to look at ourselves. And, you know, the, the lack of healthy escapes, um, natural healthy escapes that uh, aren't present now during COVID cause us to be challenged. I, I, what I've said to parents is, you know, if you didn't have a practice, uh, like I have, a, I have a therapy practice as a client, right? I have a meditation practice. Um, I have a practice that I use to maintain whatever semblance of mental health I can maintain. Um, and then when COVID came, it was kind of easy to kind of turn that up just a little bit. Um, but if you didn't have a practice and things were going okay from you for you before COVID, you might need a practice. This is extra. This is harder. I also think about it. I, I love to think about it in terms of the compassion that we have, the people that struggle with addictions, which is the world is unsafe and feels threatening to them when there's no COVID, when there's no virus sweeping the planet. And so how we feel right now, um, finding it difficult to be present in our own lives, right? That's, that's kind of what addiction is. Uh, that's what compulsive symptoms are is it's an unwillingness or an inability to be present in our own lives this is kind of what we're being forced to do it at levels that we couldn't have imagined that there's no intervention that that, that has been created like this um except for maybe prison right um that, that we we have to we're confronted with ourselves we're confronted with ourselves in the faces of our children and our spouses we're confronted with ourselves because trips to the grocery store are not are not a simple escape anymore. Going to the post office, um, taking a, a small vacation to a spot. There's limited, ex there's limited healthy escapes. And so I think we're just forced inward to look at ourselves. And so that's why the experience during COVID is so vast, mm. right? So varied because uh, it depends on your practice and it depends on kind of how you feel about going inward, which this pandemic has required us to do just by the nature of, of stay at home. Mm -hmm. Those have been my thoughts about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, and thank you for being on and thank you for sharing more about the book, more about yourself. Um, you have the journey of the heroic parent and then you have your new book. Will you remind us what the title of that is? The title is the audacity to be you. The subtitle, which I love just as much is called, it says, uh, learning to love your horrible, rotten self. Awesome. And where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at evoketherapy.com or drbradreedy.com. I also have a podcast called Finding You, an Evoke Therapy podcast. Awesome. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Dane.